things. Brad did have a song for Psalm 2 last week as well, but hard to sing over Zoom. So uh, we will try to sing this one in person in a moment. But we are glad you're here, and as we begin, uh, Mike Willis is here, and ask him to lead us in prayer. Psalm 3, and we'll first of all read this from the New American Standard Bible. We'll have some opening observations about it. Read the text again uh, before we begin looking at it. But a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God, Silah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Silah. I lay down and slept. I awoke. For the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Psalm 3 has several firsts. It is the first psalm that we have studied that the Old Testament text relates to David. David's name is mentioned in the headings of 73 of the psalms. 73 of the psalms. Now one of the things that's particularly striking is psalms in, in book one which is chapters 1 or Psalms 1 through 41, only two psalms after this are not attributed to David. And that is Psalm 10 and Psalm 33. And in Psalm 33, the Septuagint still attributes this to David. So it's the first psalm in the Old Testament text connected with David. Now understanding, though, when we talked about at a Psalm uh, two last week, and we talked about Acts 4, verses 25 and 26. It attributes Psalm 2 to David. So, it's the first one attributed to David. It is also the first psalm that has a heading in the sense of historical events in the life of David. And I gave you in your notes a sentence over a dozen passages, a dozen of the Psalms that deal with historical events. They have titles that deal with historical events in the life of David. I said over a dozen because I was noticing some writers say 13 and some say 14. And I'm thinking that shouldn't be that easy, hard to figure out if it's 13 or 14. The one that is in question is Psalm 30. Some question whether that is a heading, uh, separate, uh, something separate, and whether it should be listed in this group. But 13 or 14 of these Psalms have headings that deal with historical events in the life of David. The most famous of these is Psalm 51, which connects David's Sin, David's sin with Bathsheba to that particular psalm. 
question. How are we to view these headings of the Psalms? For example, when we read here that this was written when David was fleeing from Absalom, do we take that heading seriously? Or is it really of no historical value? Robert Alter said in his books on Psalms, and he represents quite a few, when he says such ascriptions have no historical authority. But I would tend to disagree with that. Look at Psalm 18. Psalm 18. How are we to view the headings of these psalms? This is the point that we're asking. Psalm 18 is pretty much parallel with 2 Samuel 22. Now notice in the heading of the psalm, Psalm 18, for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of the song in the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, that is the heading. Keep your finger there in Psalm 18 and look at 2 Samuel 22. In 2 Samuel 22, in verse 1, David spoke the words of this psalm to the Lord in the day the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, that's part of the text, isn't it? That's part of the text. So, in this particular case, when you compare Second Samuel 22 and the words that are found in the text in verse 1 with the heading of Psalm 18, it sure sounds like in that case, we need to take the heading of the psalm seriously. We're going to give the benefit of the doubt to these headings. We don't know if they were added by a later author, what time that was, so we're going to assume that they uh, do have Authority and that they should be listened to. Now, there are several points where this can sound like events in the days when David was fleeing from Absalom. For example, in uh, verse one, how many are how how my adversaries have increased? Many are rising against me. Many are saying. Of him, there's no deliverance in God. Do you remember in Second Samuel chapter 15, the Bible says in Second Samuel 15 in verse 12, the conspiracy was strong and the people increased continually with Absalom. And then a messenger comes and says the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So. Those opposing David on that occasion were many. His enemies were saying, there is no deliverance of God. Do you remember Shimei? He was the man who was cursing, throwing rocks at David as he was leaving. He said, get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you reigned. And he has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you're a man of bloodshed. That was 2 Samuel 16, verses 7 and 8. But my point in using those words, my point, while it doesn't have the same line, there's no deliverance of God. It is the same idea, isn't it? The same kind of idea that we see expressed there. Uh, Also, you notice... In 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, when David leaves, the Bible says, 2 Samuel 15, 30 and 31, that his head was covered. But yet in this psalm, he will speak of the Lord lifting up his head. In this psalm, David speaks 
of how he lay down and slept and he awoke for the Lord sustains him. It's as if he was afraid for his life, but he wakes up to see the sunrise another day. Do you remember when the sons of the priest were sending messages to David and said, you better go ahead, cross the Jordan tonight, 2 Samuel 17, because Absalom may be coming for you tonight? The point I'm trying to make is there are several points of correspondence between what we read in 2 Samuel 15 and 18 and what we see uh, in Psalm 3. And so these are things that may inform us uh, about this particular psalm. Now, a couple of other things. First of all, we want to try, as we study the psalms, to tie them with the previous psalms that we've studied. In this case, we only have a couple. But what are some points? Did you see any points of connection, any points of correspondence between Psalm 3 and Psalm 2, or Psalm 3 and Psalm 1 and 2? Did you see any, any points? Okay. Yeah, it's a two verse six, but yeah, that is the strongest point, like you're saying there. In verse four, I was crying to the Lord with my voice. He answered me from my, from his holy mountain. But back in chapter two, verse six, Psalm two six, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So, you do see an obvious connection there. The Lord said in Psalm 2, in verse 6, something wrong. Did I not turn this on? I didn't turn that on. But Psalm 2, in verse 6, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then in 3, 4, God answers from his holy mountain. That is... Uh, a very clear connection, very clear vocabulary link. I'll tell you, though, a couple of others and, and be looking for some more. I may give you another chance in just a second. But remember how Psalm 2 ended. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And Psalm 3 is an illustration of how blessed the person is who does take refuge in God. How blessed they are. And David is blessed because of taking refuge in God. Another thing, David in verse 7 says, You have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Now that sounds a lot like what Psalm 9 says about what the king was to do, doesn't it? You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Here, you have smitten them on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth, shattered the teeth of the wicked. So, it's a correspondence uh, in that respect. But I'll tell you another thing that comes from looking at this psalm contextually. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the, does not walk in a way with sinners or sit in the seat. Uh, of scoffers, uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And I recognize I didn't quote that perfectly. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by the rivers that brings forth its fruit in its season. And whatever he does, he prospers. What does it mean that whatever the righteous man does will prosper? Well, whatever it means, it does not mean that our life will be without struggles, that our life will be without difficulty, and maybe even deadly opponents, as Psalm 3, 1 and 2 shows. Right after describing the blessedness of the individual who trusts God in Psalm 1, in Psalm 2, he describes the different path that nations take. In Psalm 3, what we find, how many are my adversaries, how they have increased. Many are rising against me. So the blessed life 
does not deny that there will be difficulties and troubles and hardships. It is hard to outline um, some sometimes, but let me try this, and this is a little different than what I put on the notes uh, this afternoon. But in Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2, he mentions his many adversaries, his many opponents. They are, they are many. They are multitudes. But in verses 3 through 6, he expresses his confidence in God, his confidence in the Lord. Some are reluctant to call this a psalm of lament because he spends more time expressing his confidence in God and how God sustained him than he does pouring out his uh, problems. And then he asks the Lord, Arise, O Lord, to my defense. Now, a weakness of this is because it may be that that second Selah in verse 4 gives that as a better breaking point. But that's at least one view of the psalm. The first three verses address God directly, O Lord, um, and speak to Him directly. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. But then verses 4 through 6 speak of God in third person. And verse 7, the last part of verse 8 I speak of God in first person. The first part of verse 8 speaks in a third person. I should say, I don't mean first person, I mean second person. You are a shield about me. They directly address God. And some key words or ideas. I didn't give you a chance a second ago to name other points of connection between Psalms 1 and 2. Let me give you a point, give you something here. What are, what are some words that stood out to you? Simply, sometimes by repetition, uh, what are some of the key ideas in this song? Okay, very good. Key word is the word salvation, the word deliverance. It may be translated various ways in your translation. It's actually used three times here. It's used in verse 2, it's used in verse 7, and it's used in verse 8. And so that ultimately is the key thing, uh, that the Lord's salvation belongs to the Lord, as the first in verse 8 uh, strongly asserts. So it's very good. Well, what else did you see uh, that is repeated and stressed? Yes, Okay, very good. The enemies rise in verse 1, but in verse 7, he calls on the Lord to arise. And the Lord's arising to judge David's foes uh, answers the rising up of his enemies. Very good. Very good. Um, yes, Mike? Lifts up his head. Yes, yes. And, and that uses Nassau, doesn't it? Okay. Um, okay. Okay, yes, yes, it does. It does, you're right. And uh, it, it is a different word, but it's the same concept that you have in verse 3. And in verse, the most obvious one that I thought you would mention at first, the word many found in verse 1, verse 1, verse 2, and then the word 10,000 in verse 6 is from the same Hebrew 
word, same Hebrew uh, root word that's used in that particular passage. So those are some key ideas, and I want you to keep those those in mind. Now, Brad, do you know what translation this is based on? Daniel 3.15, what God is able to deliver from my hand? 
Here, the case is probably not his, his. David has peace internationally. His troubles are internal. And I'm not saying he didn't do anything to bring troubles on himself. We know about David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. He did bring some on himself, but his troubles are more internal. This statement is made not by people, probably, who are defiant of the true God and don't believe the true God is able to deliver. This statement is made by people who believe that they, God will not deliver you, David. All you've done wrong, all the evil you've done. As we saw earlier, he was accused for all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in 2 Samuel chapter 16. Verses 7 and 8. But any time that people say that, they're taking up their mocking and their criticism to an extra level. They're not only mocking you, but they're mocking God in some sense. And they're saying, He's not going to deliver you. It is interesting to see the number of times that the enemies of the psalmist are quoted in the book of Psalms. It appears quite frequently, and I gave you some illustrations in your notes, but let me just read one of them. In Psalm 22, verse 8, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. So they are mocking the innocent sufferer. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. So they are mocking these strong enemies, these, these mul- this multitude of enemies are rising against him and claiming there is no deliverance in God. And he says, Silah. Now, I was asked a question about this this afternoon. Silah. Um, there, this, this word is used 71 times in Psalms. It is only used three times outside of Psalm. Does anybody know where? That's a good place to look, yes. But but it would be in Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk 3 uses that term three times. And Silah. And... It may have been some kind of a musical notation. It, it may have been something like that. But but we don't know for sure uh, what Selah is. Now, I have vague memories of this. I have, and, and I can't tell you uh, who this was or if I have dreamed it. But in the days when church bulletins were a big thing, that I can remember, it seems like some bulletin I got for the preacher would, you know, go into this um, statement um, we might call diatribe on some subject. At the end, he would say, Silah. And um, he thought, well, nobody knows what that means, you know, but it does sound sophisticated. I, and, and I don't, and I don't know if I'm dreaming that uh, or. I know we had a personal friend who used to write us letters who put Silah on it in that fashion. Maybe that's what I'm saying. But anyway, we don't know exactly what it is. We don't know for sure its significance, but it is something that is connected closely with Psalm. I will try to read it if I don't accidentally skip over it when we encounter it in the Psalms. But he says... You, O Lord, are a shield about me. To one who has powerful enemies, to one who has numerous enemies, to one whose enemies are taunting him, he says, you are my shield. And in the Hebrew language, the person that is addressed, the person that is acting, is often is usually inherent in the verb. If you have a separate personal pronoun, it serves for emphasis. And you have that here. You, O Lord, are shield about me. You'll have another 
personal pronoun emphasized in verse 5. I lay down and sleep. But you are a shield about me. And the New Testament speaks of a shield of faith in Ephesians chapter 6. But the point is a shield protects us from the, the damage that the enemy can do and the arrows that the enemy shoots. And he describes God as his shield. When his enemies are many and his enemies are strong, the Lord is his shield. The Lord is his shield. And I gave you a lot of passages that use that expression from the book of Psalms. Uh, one that is outside of the book of Psalms that uses that expression. In Genesis 15, after Abraham had won a military victory in Genesis 14, in Genesis 15, the Lord says to uh, Abram, Do not fear, I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. And all of us understand that one. Is the language of protection. It's the language of defense. You, O Lord, are the shield about me. My glory. The king has more glory than the average man. He serves in... He fulfills an exalted role, but God is his glory. And he said, the one who lifts up my head, who lifts up my head... We earlier referred to the fact that David had his head covered and he is mourning and grieving at the Mount of Olives in 2 Samuel 15.30. But now the Bible describes the Lord as the one who lifts up my head. Now, that phrase, lifts up my head, sometimes to be defeated in battle means that one means that one did not lift up his head. But one who was victorious in battle lifted his hand. And you see some examples of that. For example, after Gideon defeats the Midianites, then they did not lift up their head. In Psalm 110, which is perhaps the psalm most quoted in the New Testament, in verse 7, you see there the victories of the one that's described and says he lifted up his head. Uh, or the Lord will lift up his head. You see the same kind of imagery in Zechariah, and I'm connecting the not lifting their heads here, lifting your head in these passages, but, uh, but this is one who gives victory in battle. Why does David emerge victorious in conflict with Absalom? Because the Lord gives Because the Lord gives his Defender. And some of you are familiar too, and I'm sure, though I don't remember us singing it here since I've been here, that those words are placed in a song. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. And I was crying to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. Cries to the Lord. The Lord hears. The Lord who on his holy mountain in 2 verse 6 installed his king. I'll install my king. And this king tells of the decree of the Lord. You are um, the, the, the decree of the Lord. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. But the Lord who made that who installed the king and who made that decree is a defender and protector of the king. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. He answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me. Round about. Is verse 6 easier to utter in times of peace or in times of conflict? I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Peter Craigie 
made this observation on this verse. If one gazes upon the enemy in his mind, the enemy grows in mind's eye to gigantic proportions and the citadels, his citadels reach the skies. But the hypnotic power of the enemy is broken when one turns one's gaze to God who is able to fight and give victory. And there are all kinds of examples of that. The example that he used is from Deuteronomy 1, and it's reviewing the events of Numbers 13 and 14. In Deuteronomy 1.28, where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are bigger and taller than we, the cities are large and fortified to heaven, and besides, we even saw the sons of the Anakim there. So again, they're looking on the enemy. They see that their enemies are bigger and taller than they are, that their cities are larger and their cities are fortified. They see all of this. In verse 29, Then I said, Do not be shocked, nor fear them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Your enemies may look gigantic, but put your focus on God. We see the same thing in David and Goliath. We see the same thing when Peter tries to walk on the water. He's walking on the water, and he sees the wind and waves, and he begins to sing. And part of what we're trying to do in studying this book of Psalms is just to strengthen, to fortify our trust, our dependence upon God so that we are able to say things in day of crisis. And may God help us all because we need it. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. And he says in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, and you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Now, as was pointed out earlier, we do find the words rise or rising up used in verse 1 about the enemies rising up. A different word in verse 3 for the Lord lifting up the head. But as the enemies rise up, as the Lord lifts up the psalmist, so in this particular case, he calls the Lord to arise. Now, are some of you, you, some of you young people here, are you, any of you planning majoring in English in college? You're not planning on majoring. Majoring in English. Um, how many of you could tell me what an imperative, particularly young people, imperative sentence is? Or what I say? I know some of you know this. An imperative. If I tell you, close the door, that's an imperative. It's kind of a command. You understand that. We don't think of giving commands to God for good reason. We're not in a position to tell him what to do. And yet this word is used as an imperative, and actually it's an emphatic imperative. It's particularly strongly emphasized, and it's used this way about ten times in the book of Psalms, only thirteen in the Old Testament. But ten of those are in the book of Psalms. And he is calling, God arise, my enemies are rising in large numbers against me. Arise, O Lord, arise, O Lord, and spite my enemies. Now, 
One of those times that's not found in the book of Psalms is in Numbers 10, verses 35 and 36. Numbers 10, 35 and 36. This talks about the Lord arising as the Israelites journeyed through the wilderness and they moved the ark from place to place. It came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. When it comes to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So what you see in this passage is this language was used as they set out from place to place with the Ark of the Covenant. By the way, Psalm 68, verse 1, seems to echo these words of, of or close to them. The words of Numbers chapter uh, 10, uh, verses 35 and 36. Arise, O Lord, as the Lord uh, led the people in battle before the Ark of the Covenant. Here David is calling upon the Lord to defeat his foes. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you have smitten my enemies on the cheek, and you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Um, some have this as a request, but, but, but he actually uses uh, a, a tense, a perfect tense which indicates completed action. You have, you have smitten your enemies. And maybe there is, there's something called prophetic that, that some have described as prophetic perfect that the future of men, but it's described with such certainty that it's almost as if it happened Already. This is an element that we're not going to deal with now, but many of the prayers have imprecatory elements. They call down judgments upon their foes. They call down curses upon their enemies. And we'll deal with that, Lord willing, at some time later. But he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Now, before we go on to one thing before we finish, I want to ask you, do you have any other questions about Psalm 3? Do you have any uh, comments you want to make on that that we really didn't do justice? Anybody have anything there, question or something? Yeah. It, I understand exactly what you're saying. Psychologically, that is kind of profound. And there was one commentary that I was looking at, and I, don't, I think that it included this verse without comment. Acts 12, 5 and 6. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Guards in front of the door were watching over him. It's the night before his execution, and Peter is sound asleep. Would I be sound asleep? Now, could it be that he trusted God would deliver him because of the words of John 21? It could be, but, but it's the same thing that you're stating. That here in the midst of a situation that is total chaos and pandemonium for the, the, the person who's living it, they put their trust in God so soundly, so securely, that they can sleep amidst all these enemies and these terrifying things. 
That's that's a good a good thing. Yes, yes. That's that's a good point. That's the only time too, unless I am forgetting something. In the gospel, Jesus is pictured as asleep. The only time he sleeps is in the middle of a violent storm. And uh, but it's yes, it is the same kind of picture. Mark four, thirty-five to forty-one uh, is one of the passages that deal with that. And what we want to do is at the end of these psalms, or a lot of at the end of a lot of these psalms, if we if we have time, we want to say how does this psalm relate to Jesus? And we're going to explain it more as we go throughout the psalm that I think the psalms that are quoted in the New Testament give us a way to look at the Old Testament. And we can look at these Old Testament psalms in light of Jesus, even if they're not specifically quoted of Jesus in the New Testament. And I'm going to establish that more, Lord willing, when we get to some of the Psalms that are quoted more frequently. I know we dealt with Psalm 2 last week, and of course, it is just quoted directly so often. Um, but uh, Psalm 3, Psalm 3, what elements in that Psalm would you apply to Christ? What elements would you say, Christ lived this? Okay, yes. First of all, just many foes and many enemies. It is so interesting that in John's Gospel, when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem in a triumphal entry in John 12, the Pharisees said, See, you are accomplishing nothing. The whole world has gone after you. The whole world has gone after you. Just the Sunday before his crucifixion, that is said. But then the text tells us in passages like Matthew 27, verses 20 through 26, and Mark chapter 15, verses 11 through 15, in Luke 23, verses 23 through 25, in all these passages, you see the multitudes are, are demanding his crucifixion, are shouting, crucify him, asking that Barabbas be released, and wanting Jesus to be crucified. David lived Psalm 3, and was delivered and rescued. Jesus lives Psalm 3, and he goes to the cross. And even those words that they say of him in 3 verse 2, there is no deliverance in God. No deliverance in God. Remember how uh, they stated to Christ on the cross, that uh, let God deliver him in Matthew 27, verse 43. And really all the words that they shout to him are mocking and taunting Jesus. They are quoting from the wicked people of Psalm 22. Well, Jesus is fulfilling the role of the innocent sufferer of Psalm 22 upon the cross. But they're saying there's no deliverance for him in God. And he was... In 3 4, he cried to the Lord, and the Lord heard him. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, he offered up a prayer to God with strong crying and tears to the one who was able to save him. Now, one that also applies is, but, but it's a little different. In 3 7, you see the enemies, he said to, uh, strike them on the cheek. And that was a great insult, to strike someone on the cheek. Uh, you see Job describing that in Job 16 and verse 10. And you, it's, it's mentioned in Lamentations 3 verse 30. It's mentioned in Micah 5 verse 1, a ruler of Israel who will be struck on the cheek. 
but uh, strike them on the cheek. It, it is Jesus, Jesus experienced the treatment that the wicked have suffered. Isn't that amazing? But you also have called attention times this word rise or arise arise O Lord salvation belongs to the Lord and the Jesus whose enemies were many the Jesus who was struck on the cheek that Jesus was raised from the dead. He arose his form. They have a form in some of these songs. And God said, He Yes, yes. And I certainly helps us to rest, sleep, to focus our eyes on Him. And we, and we could uh, point out that about sleep that, that, that Mike said earlier about the, um, as well from Jesus asleep in the midst of the storm. But you see, Jesus, in a certain sense, certain sense, all of the Psalms are messianic. They ultimately point at this one who is to come. And through Jesus being smitten on the cheek, through his death and resurrection, he destroyed his enemies. Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15. Yes. Jesus. Yes, yes. He is both the um, he is both Savior and one who is blessed by the Father. The Father and Son work together in this. So yes, you know, he he is both the one who he is both the one who suffers and the one to whom the plea is made. And that is profound and hard to get our arms around. Thank you very much for your attention. We're going to try to have uh, Brad lead us in this song again. Brother McNabb, would you lead us in closing prayer? Does that? And so we'll have.